Book One, Chapter Three, Sections Five and Six of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter Three, Sections Five and Six. Section 5. You must understand that I had no set plan of murder when I walked over to Chexhill. I had no set plan of any sort. There was a great confusion of dramatically conceived intentions in my head, scenes of threatening and denunciation and terror, but I did not mean to kill. The revolver was to turn upon my rival my disadvantage in age and physique. But that was not it, really. The revolver. I took the revolver because I had the revolver and was a foolish young lout. It was a dramatic sort of thing to take. I had, I say, no plan at all. Ever and again during the second trudge to Chexhill, I was irradiated with a novel, unreasonable hope. I had awakened in the morning with the hope it may have been the last unfaded trail of some obliterated dream, that after all Nettie might relent toward me, that her heart was kind toward me in spite of all that I imagined had happened. I even thought it was possible that I might have misinterpreted what I had seen. Perhaps she would explain everything. My revolver was in my pocket for all that. I limped at the outset, but after the second mile my ankle warmed to forgetfulness, and the rest of the way I walked well. Suppose, after all, I was wrong. I was still debating that as I came through the park. By the corner of the paddock near the keeper's cottage, I was reminded by some belated blue hyacinths of a time when I and Nettie had gathered them together. It seemed impossible that we could really have parted ourselves for good and all. A wave of tenderness flowed over me, and still flooded me as I came through the little dell and drew towards the hollies. But there the sweet Nettie of my boy's love faded, and I thought of the new Nettie, of desire, and the man I had come upon in the moonlight. I thought of the narrow, hot purpose that had grown so strongly out of my springtime freshness, and my mood darkened to night. I crossed the beechwood and came towards the gardens with a resolute and sorrowful heart. When I reached the green door in the garden wall, I was seized for a space with so violent a trembling that I could not grip the latch to lift it, for I no longer had any doubt how this would end. The trembling was succeeded by a feeling of cold and whiteness and self-pity. I was astonished to find myself grimacing to feel my cheeks wet, and thereupon I gave way completely to a wild passion of weeping. I must take just a little time before the thing was done. I turned away from the door and stumbled for a little distance, sobbing loudly, and lay down out of sight among the bracken, and so presently became calm again. I lay there some time. I had half a mind to desist, and then my emotion passed like the shadow of a cloud, and I walked very coolly into the gardens. 
Through the open door of one of the glass houses I saw old Stuart. He was leaning against the staging, his hands in his pockets, so deep in thought he gave no heed to me. I hesitated and went on towards the cottage, slowly. Something struck me as unusual about the place, but I could not tell at first what it was. One of the bedroom windows was open, and the customary short blind, with its brass upper rail partly unfastened, drooped obliquely across the vacant space. It looked negligent and odd, for usually everything about the cottage was conspicuously trim. The door was standing wide open, and everything was still, but giving that usually orderly hall an odd look. It was about half-past two in the afternoon, was a pile of three dirty dishes, with used knives and forks upon them, on one of the hall chairs. I went into the hall, looked into either room, and hesitated. Then I fell upon the door-knocker, and gave a loud rat-tat-too, and followed this up with an amiable, Hello! For a time no one answered me, and I stood listening and expectant, with my fingers about my weapon. Someone moved about upstairs presently, and was still again. The tension of waiting seemed to brace my nerves. I had my hand on the knocker for the second time when Puss appeared in the doorway. For a moment we remained staring at one another without speaking. Her hair was disheveled, her face dirty, tear-stained, and irregularly red. Her expression at the sight of me was pure astonishment. I thought she was about to say something, and then she had darted away out of the house again. "'I say, Puss,' I said, "'Puss!' I followed her out of the door. "'Puss, what's the matter? Where's Nettie?' She vanished round the corner of the house. I hesitated, perplexed, whether I should pursue her. What did it all mean? Then I heard someone upstairs. "'Willie!' cried the voice of Mrs. Stewart. "'Is that you?' "'Yes,' I answered. "'Where is everyone? Where is Nettie? I want to have a talk with her.' She did not answer, but I heard her dress rustle as she moved. I judged she was upon the landing overhead. I paused at the foot of the stairs, expecting her to appear and come down. Suddenly came a strange sound, a rush of sounds, words jumbled and hurrying, confused and shapeless, borne along upon a note of throaty distress that at last submerged the words altogether and ended in a wail, except that it came from a woman's throat it was exactly the babbling sound of a weeping child with a grievance. I can't, she said, I can't, and that was all I could distinguish. It was, to my young ears, the strangest sound conceivable from a kindly, motherly little woman, whom I had always thought of chiefly as an unparalleled maker of cakes. It frightened me. I went upstairs at once in a state of infinite alarm. And there she was upon the landing, leaning forward over the top of the chest of drawers, beside her open bedroom door, and weeping. I never saw such weeping. One thick strand of black hair had escaped and hung with a spiral twist down her back. Never before had I noticed that she had gray hairs. As I came upon the landing, her voice rose again. Oh, that I should have to tell you, Willie. Oh, that I should have to tell you. She dropped her head again, 
and a fresh gust of tears swept all further words away. I said nothing. I was too astonished. But I drew nearer to her and waited. I never saw such weeping. The extraordinary wetness of her dripping handkerchief abides with me to this day. That I should have lived to see this day, she wailed. I'd rather a thousand times she was struck dead at my feet. I began to understand. Mrs. Stewart, I said, clearing my throat, what has become of Nettie? That I should have lived to see this day, she said by way of reply. I waited till her passion abated. There came a lull. I forgot the weapon in my pocket. I said nothing, and suddenly she stood erect before me, wiping her swollen eyes. Willie, she gulped. She's gone. Nettie? Gone. Run away. Run away from her home. Oh, Willie, Willie, the shame of it. The sin and shame of it. She flung herself upon my shoulder and clung to me and began again to wish her daughter lying dead at our feet. There, there, said I, and all my being was a-tremble. Where has she gone? I said as softly as I could. But for the time she was preoccupied with her own sorrow, and I had to hold her there and comfort her with the blackness of finality spreading over my soul. Where has she gone? I asked for the fourth time. I don't know. We don't know. And, oh, Willie, she went out yesterday morning. I said to her, Nettie, I said to her, you're mighty fine for a morning call. Fine clothes for a fine day, she said. And that was her last words to me, Willie. The child I suckled at my breast. Yes, yes, but where has she gone, I said. She went on with sobs, and now telling her story with a sort of fragmentary hurry. She went out bright and shining out of this house forever. She was smiling, Willie, as if she was glad to be going. Glad to be going, I echoed with soundless lips. You're mighty fine for the morning, I says, mighty fine. Let the girl be pretty, says her father, while she's young. And somewhere she's got a parcel of her things hidden to pick up, and she was going off, out of this house forever. She became quiet. Let the girl be pretty, she repeated. Let the girl be pretty while she's young. Oh, how can we go on living, Willie? He doesn't show it, but he's like a stricken beast. He's wounded to the heart. She was always his favorite. He never seemed to care for puss like he did for her, and she's wounded him. Where has she gone? I reverted at last to that. We don't know. She leaves her own blood. She trusts herself. Oh, Willie, it'll kill me. I wish she and me together were lying in our graves. But I moistened my lips and spoke slowly. She may have gone to marry. If that was so, I prayed to God it might be so, Willie. I prayed that he'd take pity on her. Him, I mean, she's with. I jerked out. Who's that? In her letter, she said he was a gentleman. She did say he was a gentleman. In her letter, has she written? Can I see the letter? Her father took it. But if she writes, when did she write? It came this morning. But where did it come from? You can tell. She didn't say. She said she was happy. She said love took one like a storm. Curse that. Where is her letter? Let me see it. And as for this gentleman... She stared at me. You know who it is. Willie, she protested. 
You know who it is, whether she said or not. Her eyes made a mute, unconfident denial. Young Verall? She made no answer. All I could do for you, Willie, she began presently. Was it young Verall, I insisted? For a second, perhaps, we faced one another in stark understanding. Then she plumped back to the chest of drawers and her wet pocket handkerchief, and I knew she sought refuge from my relentless eyes. My pity for her vanished. She knew it was her mistress's son as well as I, and for some time she had known. She had felt. I hovered over her for a moment, sick with amazed disgust. I suddenly bethought me of old Stuart out in the greenhouse and turned and went downstairs. As I did, I looked up to see Mrs. Stuart moving droopingly and lamely back into her own room. Section 6 Old Stuart was pitiful. I found him still inert in the greenhouse where I had first seen him. He did not move as I drew near him. He glanced at me and then stared hard again at the flower pots before him. Ah, Willie, he said, this is a black day for all of us. What are you going to do? I asked. The missus takes on so, he said. I came out here. What do you mean to do? What is a man to do in such a case? Do, I cried. Why do? He ought to marry her, he said. By God, yes, I cried. He must do that anyhow. He ought to. It's, it's cruel. But what am I to do? Suppose he won't. Likely he won't. What then? He drooped with an intensified despair. Here's this cottage, he said, pursuing some contracted argument. We've lived here all our lives, you might say. Clear out at my age. One can't die in a slum. I stood before him for a space, speculating what thoughts might fill the gaps between those broken words. I found his lethargy and the dimly shaped mental attitudes his words indicated abominable. I said abruptly, You have her letter? He dived into his breast pocket, became motionless for ten seconds, then woke up again and produced her letter. He drew it clumsily from its envelope and handed it to me silently. Why, he cried, looking at me for the first time, what's come to your chin, Willie? It's nothing, I said, it's a bruise. And I opened the letter. It was written on greenish-tinted fancy notepaper, with all and more than Nettie's usual triteness and inadequacy of expression. Her handwriting bore no traces of emotion. It was round and upright, and clear as though it had been done in a writing lesson. Always her letters were like masks upon her image. They fell like curtains before the changing charm of her face. One altogether forgot the sound of her light, clear voice, confronted by a perplexing, stereotyped thing that had mysteriously got a hold upon one's heart and pride. How did that letter run? My dear mother, do not be distressed at my going away. I have gone somewhere safe, and with someone who cares for me very much. I am sorry for your sakes, but it seemed that it had to be. Love is a very difficult thing, and takes hold of one in ways one does not expect. Do not think I am ashamed about this. I glory in my love, and you must not trouble too much about me. I am very, very happy. Deeply underlined. 
Fondest love to father and puss. Your loving, Nettie. That queer little document. I can see it now, for the childish, simple thing it was. But at the time I read it in a suppressed anguish of rage. It plunged me into a pit of hopeless shame. There seemed to remain no pride for me in life until I had revenge. I stood staring at those rounded, upstanding letters, not trusting myself to speak or move. At last I stole a glance at Stuart. He held the envelope in his hand and stared down at the postmark between his horny thumbnails. "'You can't even tell where she is,' he said, turning the thing round in a hopeless manner and then desisting. "'It's hard on us, Willie. Here she is. She hadn't anything to complain of. A sort of pet for all of us, not even made to do her share of the housework. And she goes off and leaves us like a bird that's learnt to fly. Can't trust us. That's what takes me. Puts herself. But there. What's to happen to her? What's to happen to him? He shook his head to show that problem was beyond him. You'll go after her, I said in an even voice. You'll make him marry her. Where am I to go, he asked helplessly, and held out the envelope with a gesture. And what could I do, even if I knew? How could I leave the gardens? Great God, I cried, not leave these gardens. It's your honor, man. If she was my daughter, if she was my daughter, I'd tear the world to pieces. I choked. You mean to stand it? What can I do? Make him marry her. Horsewhip him. Horsewhip him, I say. I'd strangle him. He scratched slowly at his hairy cheek, opened his mouth, and shook his head. Then, with an intolerable note of sluggish, gentle wisdom, he said, "'People of our sort, Willie, can't do things like that.' I came near to raving. I had a wild impulse to strike him in the face. Once in my boyhood, I happened upon a bird terribly mangled by some cat and killed it in a frenzy of horror and pity. I had a gust of that same emotion now, as the shameful, mutilated soul fluttered in the dust before me. Then, you know, I dismissed him from the case. "'May I look?' I asked. He held out the envelope reluctantly. "'There it is,' he said, and pointing with his garden-rough forefinger. I-A-P-A-M-P. What can you make of that?' I took the thing in my hands. The adhesive stamp, customary in those days, was defaced by a circular postmark, which bore the name of the office of departure and the date. The impact in this particular case had been light or made without sufficient ink, and half the letters of the name had left no impression. I could distinguish I-A-P-A-M-P, and very faintly below, D-S-O. I guessed the name in an instant flash of intuition. It was Champenbury. The very gaps shaped that to my mind. Perhaps, in a sort of semi-visibility, other letters were there, at least hinting themselves. It was a place somewhere on the East Coast. I knew, either in Norfolk or Suffolk. Why, I cried and stopped. What was the good of telling him? Old Steward glanced up sharply. I am inclined to think almost fearfully into my face. You, you haven't got it, he said. Shamptonbury, I should remember that. 
"'You don't think you got it?' he said. I handed the envelope back to him. For a moment I thought it might be Hampton, I said. "'Hampton?' he repeated. "'Hampton? How could you make Hampton?' He turned the envelope about. H-A-M. Why, Willie, you're a worse hand at the job than me. He replaced the letter in the envelope and stood erect to put this back in his breast pocket. I did not mean to take any risk in this affair. I drew a stump of pencil from my waistcoat pocket, turned a little away from him, and wrote, Shamptonbury, very quickly on my frayed and rather grimy shirt cuff. Well, said I, with an air of having done nothing remarkable. I turned to him with some unimportant observation. I have forgotten what. I never finished whatever vague remark I commenced. I looked up to see a third person waiting at the greenhouse door. End of Book One, Chapter Three, Sections Five and Six. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas.